This is the Calvary Bible Church Podcast. Thanks for listening in today. We're praying this message encourages you. Learn more about Calvary and join us online each Sunday for services at calvarybible.com. Hi, everyone. I'm John. I'm so glad you've joined us today for Calvary Online. We're in a series together where we are studying seven statements of Jesus from the Gospel of John. They all begin by him saying, I am the bread of life, the light of the world, the good shepherd, the resurrection and the life, the way, the truth, and the life, the true vine, and today, I am the door, or maybe your Bible says the gate. If you have one, open it with me to John chapter 10. Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 9, I am the door. A door takes you somewhere from inside to outside, from one room to another, from here to there. It's a passageway or an access point to something or someone. When you want to go through a door that's broken or busted or bolted, it's super annoying though. You are denied access to to what you're looking for. Have you ever been locked out of your car or your house or even worse, locked in? Several years ago, Lindsay and I woke up one morning. We were getting ready to work, uh, go to work. We come down to the garage, hit the opener, and we hear a loud crack, and the garage door doesn't move. That giant spring that was above the door had snapped. And so I thought, okay, well, I just need to release the little handle thing and lift the door up, and then we can get our cars out, and we can go to work and call the garage door repairman, and we'll get this fixed. I went to the door, I released everything, made sure it wasn't locked, and with all of the strength I could muster, I tried to open that broken door, and it was stuck fast. There was nothing I could do. So we had to call our workplaces and tell them, you know, we we can't come to work today. Remember when we used to go to the office? And I called the garage door repairman and said, we're stuck inside of our house. We can't get the cars out. Can you come and help? And he was there relatively quickly, and I welcomed him in when he arrived and took him to the garage, and I explained to him what happened. And he said, yeah, it sounds like you snapped a spring. We can fix that, no problem. And I said, well, the weird thing is, I have tried to open this door, and it won't move. I don't know what else happened beside the spring breaking, but something is keeping this door from opening. There's nothing I can do. And as I'm explaining how it is impossible to open this door, he bends down, grabs two latches on the bottom of the door, and flings it into the air as if he's throwing a small child up in the air. And I said, well, it looks like you have this all under control. I'll just be inside. I'll probably, you know, do some bicep curls with a can of beans or something that can help with my strength. I'll leave you to it. Let me know when you need a check. When we can't get out of our house or when we can't get into a room that we need to be in, we feel helpless and we need help to come. We need a a garage door repairman or a locksmith or a repair person to come and help us. In the word picture we're looking at today, though, where Jesus describes himself as a door, he doesn't describe himself as a door to a house or a door to a room, or a door to a building, or even a door to a temple. No, in verse 7, he says, I am the door of the sheep. What does he mean? I am the door of the sheep. This is a picture of a sheepfold, or a sheep pen. 
surrounded by rock walls, and you can see the, the little entrance there where the sheep could come in and out. And the purpose of this sheep pen was that the shepherd would lead them inside of it at night to provide protection for them. All the sheep who were a part of that shepherd's fold would come into this pen. They would stay there at night. It would huddle them together. It would keep them warm and it would protect them from outside influences. And what the shepherd might do is lay across that entrance, which is just wide enough for the sheep to come in and out and wide enough that he could lay there and be a door to keep the sheep in and to keep that which is outside out. So before we jump into exactly what Jesus is saying and what he means when he says, I am the door of the sheep, we need to wrap our minds around why he is saying it. And we have a lot of ground to cover here. The statement, I am the door, is part of the same word picture that Jesus uses throughout John chapter 10. Later he'll say, I am the good shepherd. We'll look at that next week. And it has deep, rich meaning behind it. If you know your Old Testament well, you know that, that it is sprinkled with stories of shepherds. Some of the most important historical figures in the Old Testament were shepherds. Even Abraham, who is the father of the nation of Israel, his job was to be a shepherd. And from him, all the people of the family of God have been born. God made a covenant with him that through you, you will be a great nation. You, a shepherd, Abraham, and the family of God is born from a shepherd. You think about Moses. Moses, after he left uh, Pharaoh's palace when he was 40 years old, married a woman and then worked for her father, Jethro, and tended his flocks. He was a shepherd in the fields of Midian, and he did so for 40 years. It was like a training ground before God anointed him to lead the people of Israel out of bondage in Egypt into the promised land. And Moses served as their shepherd for another 40 years. As he led them out of bondage and then led them through the wilderness carrying a staff, he was a shepherd to God's people, his sheep. And of course, the prime example of a shepherd in the Old Testament is King David. Psalm 78 verses 70 through uh, 72 say of David that God chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds. And following, from following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. David is, is the prime example of a shepherd in the Old Testament. He too was trained as a shepherd before he would be the shepherd leader of God's people, before he would be their great and wise king who would lead them. And these men who were shepherds, vocationally, also held a spiritual role as shepherds. And we still look to them in some ways as shepherds. King David, we, we sing his songs in the Psalms and study his words there too. Similarly with Moses, we read his words. And from Abraham, the people who are a part of the family of God all look to him as our spiritual father. This theme of shepherd is more than just someone who tends a flock of sheep, but who leads a people. The Bible doesn't only refer to uh, men and women as shepherds in the Old Testament. It also refers to God himself as someone who shepherds. In Psalm 100, it says, know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Do you ever wish that maybe the Bible described you with uh, a different kind of animal than a sheep? 
maybe like a courageous lion, a noble steed, a loyal retriever, a majestic eagle. No, instead, the the Bible describes us as sheep. That sheep looks like he needs a leader, doesn't he? God cares deeply for his sheep and their needs. And he knows they need to be led well. And the people who he has called and anointed to lead them have a very high calling that the Old Testament makes very clear. And while Abraham and Moses and David certainly weren't perfect people by any stretch, they made many mistakes and had leadership failures. But by and large, they were good and honorable leaders who followed God and shepherded his people well. But there are so many examples in ancient history and today of shepherds who do not lead well, of pastors, that word simply means shepherd, who do not care for the flock of God in the ways that God commands them and calls them to. Bad shepherds exist. They take advantage of the flock. They extort them. They enrich themselves. They abuse them physically or emotionally or sexually or otherwise. God sees bad shepherds, and he hates this when when it occurs. In Ezekiel chapter 34, God makes mention of the problem of bad shepherds. It's it's been a historical problem. In Ezekiel 34 verse 2, he says to Ezekiel, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? In verse 11 it says, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. That's the ultimate solution to the problem of bad shepherds is that God himself will come and will seek his people, the lost sheep, the ones who the shepherds have ignored or cast out. In verse 15, he specifies exactly how he will do this. He says, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, And I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed and I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. If you've ever been wronged by a pastor or a leader, I want you to know that God promises that he will make it right. And so here comes Jesus in in all of this context, all of the historical biblical narrative about shepherds and sheep and what that means, and all of the history of, of God's declarations and prophetic words against bad shepherds. And then Jesus makes a statement, I am the door of the sheep. And remember this context. What did it say there in verse 16 of chapter 34 of Ezekiel? It says that God will seek the lost. You remember what Jesus' mission is? What his life's work was? In Luke 19.10, he says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That's why Jesus came. It's the fulfillment of this prophetic word in Ezekiel 34 that I myself will come. I will seek them. I will find them. I will shepherd them, God promises. 
So when Jesus says in John 10, I am the door of the sheep, he isn't making an analogy out of nowhere. He's not just simply speaking to the agrarian society in which he lives. He is drawing on this deep and rich biblical narrative. This history which all culminates in himself and points to him, the promised Messiah, the promised one who would come and shepherd the people of God. And he is also contrasting himself who is the good shepherd, we'll see a little bit more about that next week, with these bad shepherds, the Pharisees. That's who he's talking to right now. See, in John chapter 9, Jesus has performed a miracle. He has healed a man who had been blind since he was born. And after the healing, the man's friends and neighbors are so excited about what's happened that they take the man to the Pharisees to to celebrate and bring him before the people of God to celebrate what God has done and to testify about God's work in this man's life. And the Pharisees won't have it. First, they don't believe it. They say it's not possible. And so they call his parents to them and ask, is this really your son? And was he really blind since birth? And his parents say, Absolutely, this is our son, and he was born blind. And the Pharisees want to know who did it to him, who healed him, how did it happen? They know it's Jesus. And the parents don't answer the question. They just say, well, you you can ask our son. He's of age. Have him tell you what's happened. There's a little note in the text that says that the parents were afraid of the Jews, of the leaders, because anyone who confessed Jesus as the Messiah was cast out of the synagogue. They were denied access to the family of God, separated from God's word, excommunicated from their community. So they bring the man who has been healed in front of them, and they ask him a series of questions. How did it happen? How did he do it? isn't this man a sinner? There's this famous comment that the man makes. I I don't know whether the man's a sinner. All I know is that I was blind and now I see. And the Pharisees press him even further and they want to know, how did he do it to you? And the man, sort of at his wit's end, finally just says, "I I don't know. All I know is that how could this have happened? I've never heard of someone who was born blind being able to see. Surely this man has come from God. And the Pharisees are enraged. And they cast him out too. Excommunicate him. Deny him access to be a part of the family of God. Can you imagine the people, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, The men who were anointed by God to care for his people, to love them, to shepherd them, to lead them, that they would cast out a man who has done nothing wrong. He's simply been healed and is testifying about God's remarkable work in his life. And they're so threatened by Jesus and his work that they cast the man out. So that's the context in which we find ourselves in John chapter 10 this historical narrative, and what's happening in the here and now. And it's getting increasingly tense, especially between Jesus and the Pharisees. In fact, what will happen in John chapter 11 is that we'll read that the Pharisees will conspire to kill him, and Jesus has to go underground. He can no longer have a public ministry. And so these statements that Jesus makes throughout his ministry, and this one in particular where he says, I am the door, and then later I am the good shepherd, 
seeks to clarify exactly who he is and to make spectacular claims about himself, which will ultimately lead to his execution. But simultaneously, while he is communicating to the Pharisees exactly who he is and why he has come, he offers some gifts to those who go through the door, who use him as an access way, as the access way to God. So in the time we have remaining, I want to share with you three gifts that Jesus promises that are found behind the door, through the door of Jesus. The first is salvation. In John 10, verse 9, Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. This is a promise. Anyone who enters by me, he or she, will be saved. Not might be saved, not could be saved, but will be saved. This is a promise of Jesus. You know the famous verse that Jesus says, in John chapter 3, verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him will not perish or die, but will have everlasting life. This is the promise that Jesus brings to us, that salvation is found in him. This is not only a promise of Jesus, but this is the purpose of John writing his gospel. In John chapter 20, verse 31, he says, But I have written these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name, that you may be saved. It's the gift of Jesus found through him, the door, salvation. Now, how are we saved? I want you to notice that Jesus says, if anyone enters by me, we are saved by him, he says. I am the door. Not my teaching, not my example of living, not a list of rules, not religious practice, but me. If anyone enters by me, he or she will be saved. Jesus himself does the saving. Only he can accomplish what he ultimately will on the cross. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree or the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, we have been healed. Jesus and Jesus alone can save. We are saved by him. Now, who can be saved by Jesus? What does it say in the text? Anyone. Anyone, he says. There are no prerequisites. All may come to Jesus. The door's always open. You don't need a special key. There's not a bouncer at the door trying to check out whether you're good looking enough or accomplished enough to enter in. Now, Jesus says, all may come. Anyone may come. And it's not only that, that Jesus welcomes us as we approach the door, but he calls to us and says, come to me, find salvation through me. I want to offer this gift to you. Come through the door, he says. Now, I want to be clear. Anyone may come. This is, without a doubt, a universal claim. But there is also an exclusive claim that Jesus makes in this statement. I am the door, he says. Not I am a door, or I'm one of several doors. 
I am the door to salvation. If anyone enters by me, he or she will be saved. It's singular. There is no other way. Now, this has become a stumbling block to many people in our culture. It seems unfair or harsh of God to only allow one way of salvation. How could God make an exclusive claim like that? Maybe you're familiar with the game show, Let's Make a Deal. Whether you've watched it or not, you're probably familiar with the premise. The idea is that a contestant looks at three different doors or three different curtains or three different boxes, and behind each of those is a different prize. They don't know what they are, but it could be behind door number one, a new car, and maybe behind door number two, $500, which is a nice prize, but not as nice as a new car. And you always have the chance behind door number three of finding what they called a zonk, which is just a ridiculous prize that they would give away. Like one time they gave away a live llama. Now, for some of you, that might be a great gift. I I don't know what I would do with a live llama. I would rather have a new car or $500. But the premise of the show was that the contestant would have to choose between three options. Make a choice. And you might find behind one of the doors a spectacular gift, or you might get a zonk. Now, imagine for a moment if you were a contestant on Let's Make a Deal and you're picked, and the host says to you, today, we're going to do something a little unconventional. We don't normally reveal the prizes before the door is open, but we want to tell you about the most spectacular prize we have ever given away on Let's Make a Deal. Behind the door is $500 million. Vacations every year for the rest of your life a private jet to take you to all of these spectacular places. You can get a new car whenever you want. This gift is so lavish. You'll never be able to spend all the money. You'll never be able to go on all the vacations. You'll never be able to drive all the cars. This is the most amazing prize we've ever given away. And the best part is there's only one door. There's no other option. You just open the door. And behind it, you find spectacular wealth. And you say, well, I'd really like like to know about some other doors. And the host simply says, there is no other door. This is the door. All you have to do is enter into it and you receive the gift. You say, but but I like choices. I I just would like to know if there's other doors I could choose. What happened to door number two and door number three? There's no other door. This is it. And behind it, you will find blessing and joy and everything you could possibly imagine. Now that, to be fair, is an oversimplification of the problem we face as we grapple with the exclusivity of Christ. But perhaps if we looked at the exclusive claims of Jesus, along with the lavish and universal nature of what he offers, his exclusivity would be less of a stumbling block and more of a sweet gift that he simply says, here I am, come to me and find all that you are seeking. So the first gift that's found behind the door is salvation. The second is security. At the end of John chapter 9, excuse me, of of John 10, verse 9, Jesus says, 
I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. You'll be safe. That's the idea here, that you'll be protected, that you'll find security because the shepherd Jesus will be watching over you. There's a reason why we have locks on the doors of our dorm rooms and our apartments and our houses and condos. It's because we want to keep what's outside out. Weather and small animals, thieves. And we also want to keep what's inside in. Have you ever woken up in the morning and discovered that you left your garage open overnight? You do a quick survey like, are the bikes still there? Is my lawnmower still here? Okay, good. Everything's there. Oh man, I wish they would have taken those boxes that we've not unpacked since we moved in 10 years ago but you want to keep what's inside in. And that's what Jesus does to his people. When you enter through the door of Jesus and find salvation there, you are secure in that place. You are a part of the family of God, irrevocable. Jesus says, you you won't snatch away that which is in my hand. He won't ever leave you. He won't forsake you. He watches over you and protects you. And you'll stay in the safety of, of the sheepfold forever. And he'll keep that which is outside out. When when it's dangerous at night, he'll lie in the door and protect you from the dangers that exist there. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then when day comes, he'll allow you the freedom to go in and out and find pasture. And you'll be under the watchful care of the shepherd who's keeping watch over you, looking out for you, praying for you, caring for you. This is the kind of security that we find behind the door of Jesus. And notice how the the importance is the proximity to him, which provides protection. That we're nearby the shepherd all the time. We're in the sheepfold with the other sheep, or we're out in the pasture, but we're not far away from him. We stay close to him. We stay near to him. Because he's the one who looks out for us, who cares for us, who keeps us safe. So we find salvation through the door, security through the door. And finally, we find satisfaction. In John 10, 10, Jesus says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Abundant life is this deep soul satisfaction that can only be found in Jesus. We all have deep longings in our soul to be loved, to be cared for, to be protected, to be provided for, to be safe. And if we try to fill those deep longings in our soul with created things, we will be disillusioned. We won't find true and lasting satisfaction. The kind of fulfillment that brings us hope and peace and joy regardless of our life circumstance. If I look for an abundant life in money, there will never be enough. If I look for the abundant life in experiences, what happens in between those great experiences and adventures I've been on, If I try and find the abundant life in health, what happens when I get a diagnosis or I have a long-term disability? If I try and find the abundant life in my accomplishment 
What happens when a decision that's beyond me comes down and I no longer have a job? If I try to find the abundant life in a relationship through family or my children or grandchildren or my spouse, what kind of burden am I placing on them? Like, I love my wife so much. There is no one I would rather spend time with than Lindsay. She's amazing. But she is not made to bear all of my burdens, to take all of my troubles. She's not my wife so that I can cast all of my cares on her. As much as I love her and as as much joy as she brings to me, it is not her job to satisfy the depths of my soul. I can't look to her to be a combination life coach and advisor and someone who orders my life and who hears all my problems and deals with all of them and takes my my anxiety for me. That, That would crush her. I mean, she's a very competent woman, but she's not my savior. And it's unfair to her if I look to her to satisfy the depths of my soul. A relationship with another person can never do that. Unless that person is the eternally existent, omni-competent, all-powerful, majestic, and glorious Son of God. He promises, I will give you abundant life. I will satisfy your soul like nothing on earth ever will. And this relationship with Jesus is meant to satisfy you like no other relationship can, to bring satisfaction and fulfillment to your soul forever. The abundant life is not something we simply hope for in the future. It's something we experience now when we believe and forever through eternity. And it's freely offered to you through the door of Jesus. Have you entered? Have you accepted his invitation to come? Do you remember the blind man from John chapter 9? After he'd been cast out of the family of God, of the synagogue, Jesus sought him out and said to him, Do you believe in the Son of Man? This is Jesus' favorite title for himself. And he answered, the man did, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. My friend, if you are questioning whether you have entered the door of Jesus, I want you to look to this blind man and see what he did. He believed in Jesus, and he worshiped him. If you wonder whether you've entered the door, ask yourself, do do I believe who Jesus is who he says he is? And does my heart overflow with worship of him for who he is? I pray that it does. Lord Jesus, you say that your sheep hear your voice. You know them by name. I pray, God, if there are any sheep who need to hear your voice, that they would hear it now, that you would call to them in a supernatural way, 
you would reach into their hearts and draw them to yourself, Lord Jesus, so that you might save them, so that you might offer them security forever, so that they might find satisfaction deep in their soul because of you, Lord Jesus. We thank you, Jesus, that you are the door, that beyond you is life abundant, salvation. We worship you, Lord Jesus, and give you thanks for who you are. Amen.